Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to episode 492 with my guest Susan P. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, the website for this show is metalpod.com. Uh, metalpod, also the social media handles. You can uh, follow me slash the show at. Let's, uh, let's dive into some, some surveys. This is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls themselves Don't Eat the Alphabet Soup. Uh, they write, I love finding four-leaf clovers. I've found hundreds of them. They just pop out at me while I'm walking around my neighborhood. It's like they have an extra glow to them and want to be seen. I love shaving my long-haired orange cat to look like a little lion. He's very patient. He's a very patient, gentle giant and actually enjoys getting shaved. After a hair, he also gets his asshole bleached. After a haircut, he prances around the house with such pride and pauses extra long in front of the mirror to check himself out. I hope you leave his his head big, though, like a, like a male lion. I love wearing face paint or wild makeup and outfits to concerts. The costume is a great icebreaker and also helps me weed out any haters really quickly. By wearing something super outlandish, the only people I tracked into conversation are truly compatible with my spirit. And I love adding hot sauce to beer. <laughs> I have never heard of that one before, but that doesn't that doesn't surprise me. One of my friends does those uh is it called the bullet where you put uh, like butter in your coffee? Ugh, I do not get that. I do not get that. Been doing a lot of cooking lately, and it's it is really for for my mental health. It's it's been 
a big boost, taking the time to make myself something to eat. My default is to whip something together that takes no time, has no flavor, and I can't wait to get through eating it so that I can get on with my day. And even while I'm doing it, I often know this is not healthy. This is not a, 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 a nice thing to do for myself. And so I've been, really since the quarantine started, I've been taking more time to cook. Um, I bought a standing mixer. I've been buying different ingredients at the grocery store instead of just raisin bran milk and greens. And the last couple of mornings I've made myself, I don't know what you'd call them, Italian eggs. Uh, I put some Parmesan cheese on them. I put a little tomato sauce. I baked some fresh bread. I make some toast out of that. And I don't know there's something kind of soothing about it. But my brain, every time I wake up, tells me, you don't have the time to do that. You have to go to the bank today. That's going to take nine hours. And you're going to need a nap after it. I've also been making some killer key lime pie. Oh, my God. You, you Squeezing the fresh key limes, making the crust from scratch. And uh, oh, holy fuck, is it good. How can something be sour and sweet at the same time? I don't know. Back to, uh, back to the surveys. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself a bit inappropriate. And she writes, Dad's idea of a compliment when I'm 14, you got a lot going for you. You got the boobies growing, and you're not a lesbian. Jesus. Jesus. Uh, this is an email that I got from a listener who calls himself Cleet, and he writes, The best possible thing I could ever do for my two daughters, I did before they were born, by choosing who their mother would be. Mm. That's so profound. So profound. Thank you, Cleet. Uh, awful some moment submitted by Mateo, who is a 17-year-old kid. And he writes, It happened today when my dad said he wasn't racist after I said he was. I came back at him with, Okay, you aren't racist, but your joke yesterday was. Good for you, man. Uh, this is an email I got from Hannah, and she writes, Good morning. I received your email yesterday. The book is very helpful, but I did not understand the writer's point of view in Chapter 2, page 7. Could you possibly explain it to me Monday morning, please? Thanks in advance. With my love, Hannah S. Hannah, I hope you're listening, because this is not something I can I can write out in an, in an email. This really needs to be explained. Chapter 2, page 7, I was expounding on my theory that wolves should be allowed to drive cars. Um, as you know, in the book, I bullet-pointed my arguments why they should be. They already have great eyesight. They don't need furry seats. And sheep can hear them when they pull in the driveway. I understand why you were confused because that section is in the middle of a book that is actually just pictures of feet. I did that because I couldn't decide which book to do, so I combined them. And that's one of the perks of self-publishing. So I hope that makes sense. 
Uh, one of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp.com Online Counseling. Uh, they're also able now to help uh, kids ages 13 to 17 with parental consent at teencounseling.com. So if uh, during the filling out the uh, questionnaire at betterhelp.com slash mental, you say that you're between 13 or se- 13 and 17, they will direct you over to teencounseling.com to complete the process. And essentially once, once a, a teen completes the questionnaire, um, a message gets sent to their parent. Once the counselor and the parent talk and they agree and the parent signs off, then it's a one-on-one communication between the teen and the counselor. And the process satisfies the legal requirements in all 50 states. And they have a ton of counselors vetted and ready to, to work with teens. Um, yeah, if you've never tried BetterHelp.com, highly, highly recommend it. Go to BetterHelp.com slash mental, and um, you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. And um, Lord knows this is a good time to, to be doing online counseling. And then uh, finally, this is uh, another thing I got from Cleet, uh, and he writes, uh, the difference between type 1 and type 2 bipolar disorder, and and Cleet is a type 1 bipolar disorder. Type 2, after coming down from a manic episode, gosh, I said a lot of things I didn't really mean, spent a little too much money, and promised a bit too much, and I didn't sleep very well. Type 1, after coming down from a manic episode, fuck, I'm in Alaska. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it. Unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Maybe well, listen, thanks for coming in. <laughs> <laughs> I am here with Susan P. It is a uh, pseudonym we're going to use, so she is feels more free to, to open up about her life and the stuff that we want to talk about. We're going we're gonna to get personal. Perfect. I have known you for 10 years? Is that? Too, is that... I think it's been nine, about nine year, uh, nine and a half years. I got into program around 2000, I think 2011. Okay. Nine years. Long time. Long time. You, you are an important person in my recovery, and you're somebody that I've wanted to talk to for, for quite a while. And so I'm glad that you've squeezed some time in here before uh, before going to work. It's very early; my brain is moving very slow. I don't know if I've ever recorded somebody at seven in the morning before. Uh, I appreciate you accommodating but, me. Yeah. Well, uh, likewise. Where where do we start? Um, 
we we should probably mention that you're a, a woman of color if that fig- figures into our uh yeah our I'm, story here i'm black in america that is for sure which sounds really easy so we don't need to talk about that that's <laughs> nothing uh, to mention here nothing to nothing to see move along <laughs> where were you where and, and how old are you i am 48 where where do we start with your story um, I guess I'll just give a little bit of background. Um, you know, I was born and raised in New York City in East Harlem. Um, single mother. My dad left when I was maybe six weeks old. Um, we moved to Atlanta, Georgia when I was nine. That was an experience going from the north to the south. Um, hated it was there for about five years and then we moved to philadelphia wow atlanta in the 70s was the mecca of change and and kind of black empowerment was the the first black mayor yeah there were some good things going on the atlanta child murders were also going on that was intense and um, I was bused to school. It took me like an hour and a half to get to a good school, quote unquote, and in an all white neighborhood. And how, how were you treated? I mean, you know, as a kid, you don't recognize what we would call today microaggressions. But mm-hmm. there were certainly plenty of those. And there was just weird classism too and um yeah i I hated it (laughs) i just i just i i really felt like i didn't fit in and you know which is a classic story and and all in program of people feeling like they they don't fit in they don't belong and definitely my disease showed up early at a you know i would say You know, I was acting out at 12 to sort of cope and... Like in in what ways, if you're comfortable sharing, would you be acting out? Yeah, like I, you know, got involved with, um, you know, my disease is around sex and love. And I started, you know, making out with boys who had girlfriends. You know, I've always been attracted to you know, unavailable, inappropriate, or abusive men. And, you know, I've had plenty of all three. And so I got a bad reputation starting at 12. And I got really um, made fun of a lot and chastised and, you know, called whore and slut. And that was a lot for a 12 and 13 year old. And I kept it a secret from my mom. So she knew I was depressed, but she didn't know why. And um, I went to a school counselor and I was like, I'm having a hard time. I'm being bullied. And she's like, well, boys will be boys. And maybe you should just, you know, change your behavior. And oh, my God, it was it was tough. And so my mom, what do you remember thinking or feeling when (sighs) when you did try to open up to somebody? It was really scary. Um, I knew I needed help because I was having suicidal thoughts. Like, I did not want to live. And, um, 
I didn't know what somebody could do for me, but I knew I needed help. And she just was ill-equipped to help me. I, I didn't get what I needed and I felt further chastised. Um, I can remember going on a school trip where we spent the night in a hotel and there was another school on a trip in the same, staying at the same hotel and a boy from another school knocked on our door and I didn't even answer the door. I didn't know this boy or have anything to do with him. And the counselor that I had gone to a week earlier came flying and was like, Sarah, come here. And she was like, I, you know, I told you, you have to change your behavior. And I was like, whoa, I'm not even acting out right now. You know, not that that's the language I would have used right. at that age, but in, you know, upon reflection, like, I, and so I was like, oh, gosh, I'm kind of alone. Um, and that's what it felt like. If, if you could get into a time machine and go back to yourself at any age, what would the adult you say to you? Oh, gosh. Even if it was just comfort. You know, Paul said it was going to be okay to laugh and cry, and I was like, I'm not crying. What is he talking about? <laughs> now I'm about to cry. Um, I think I would say, Sarah, you know what? You are a beautiful girl. You are a lovely, beautiful child of God, and you are worthy of kindness and care, and you're going to be okay. Life is going to have good times and bad times, and you are going to make it through and hang in there. And, you know, I don't know if I could could have heard it, because even just telling myself to have compassion for myself today sometimes is challenging. It's so, so hard. Yeah, it is. I've 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 definitely gotten better with it. Um, but yeah, you know, it's easy. It's easy to judge yourself. And I, you know, I didn't like myself. I really suffered from low self-esteem for a long time. So... What do you recall uh, being in Atlanta about the Atlanta child murders? And, and what that would have been about 1978. That sounds about 80, right. Somewhere around there. That's correct. Um, There's a great HBO documentary series on it. It's it's it's. I have it. it it's not very upbeat, as you can imagine, but it goes into. Uh, it explores areas that have never been explored about mm. it before. And they don't necessarily say he was wrongly convicted or rightly convicted because there's people on both sides. Uh, they're ta talking about Wayne Williams, who was found guilty. Um, but just in the way they go back and talk to people, mm. you see how race comes into play with the way it was investigated, how the communities felt about it. the Even though there was a, a, a black mayor, Andrew Young, was it Andrew Young? I forget who, who, who the, the mayor right. was. Um, Maynard Jackson? It may have been Maynard Jackson before yeah. Andrew Young. Yeah, it was Maynard Jackson. You, wow, you know a lot of history. Um, it, it, 
you can still see the entrenched ideas of policing and, you know. But fortunately, we've gotten past that and oh, everything's great now. Gosh. Um, so what do you rec- what do you recall? I just remember it was scary. Everybody's parents were scared. Um, there were more boys being killed. So I felt a little safer on that account. But there was just this air that we were being picked off and that the world was a dangerous place and that a not enough care was being put into figuring out what what who who the perpetrator is and how to stop them. The and, federal government had to step in and send people to Atlanta to try to help. Whether or not they were helpful is is another question entirely, but yeah, I mean, it's just a tragic story of a lot of death of kids, um you know, black kids, so yeah, it was just it was just a darkness over the time. That's what I really remember is, yeah, and I was a latchkey kid, and so there was a you know just a feeling of being a bit unprotected because, you know, I would get off that school bus and have maybe a little less than a half a mile to walk to my house, which would then be empty until my mom got home from work. So as a kid, I spent a lot of time alone. And I think that's, you know, I'm an only child. So I think that also played into, you know, a lot of how my disease showed up. I really was in fantasy a lot um, because I it was me and my mind, and that's yeah. it. And when you say disease, you mean addiction, addiction. to unavailable men and acting out and using don't let me put words in your mouth um what what would be the ways that you that you would soothe yourself how how would you um engage in your addiction whether it was by yourself or with somebody else obviously by yourself fantasy fantasy for sure mm-hmm. Whew. i did not like living in reality or the moment so i had tons of fantasy can you share some um, of them if you can if you can recall were they yeah. Um, uh, of just daydreaming? Was it about, were, were you catastrophizing? Was it romantic fantasies? Rescue fantasies. Being rescued? Um, or rescuing someone? Some of both, right. you know? Like, mm-hmm. you know, like I like to fantasize that I was going to, you know, be a world leader one day and the words I spoke would cause peace across the land and people would cheer my name and say she's so smart and you know I really yeah um, my family is political so we talked about politics a lot and social movements and so you know, I always wanted to people please with my mom. And, and so I was like, oh, she's going to be so proud of me. Like, you know, yeah. she raised this leader. Uh, and then, you know, some of it was romantic, fantasized about getting married and 
my honeymoon and the wedding, those were usually the the focal points more than the actual marriage. And, um, and what do you do? You remember details about what it was that you would you would fantasize about? Oh man, I mean, up until I got about right when I got into program. Oh my you know, God, years. Gracie just let the worst fart go. I'm so <laughs> yeah, sorry. Smell at all. Oh, well, you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Gracie. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was, I was like, every detail would bring me joy to think about in fantasy from the dress to the decor to the flowers to the food to the invite list to the location to the music. I mean, detailed. And I love to travel. I've been, you know, quite quite a few places that I've wanted to go. So I would just imagine me and a guy and all, you know, in all these places that I've loved and places that I still haven't been. So just, you know, anything that brings me joy, I would just fantasize about it. And And what would you feel when you would fantasize about it? Describe maybe what you would feel physically or mentally before you began to fantasize and then what you would feel mentally and physically as you would fantasize. I have a lot of anxiety. And again, before I got into program, I wanted to control things that I couldn't control. And then when I didn't, it felt awful. Because to con- if I could control certain things, I thought I would be more comfortable. And I felt uncomfortable and anxious and afraid a lot of the time. And when I would go into fantasy, it was almost like a drug. Like I would just feel like an easing, like a relief, like I could calm down. Like for a moment, I didn't have to feel anxious or worried. I could just feel optimism or hope or a little bit of joy. Mm -hmm. And, and it's addicting. You know, when you're anxious all the time and then you can just do this thing that doesn't cost any money and it's mm-hmm. you can do it anywhere at any time. It just and you can fantasize about anything and you can fantasize about anything. It become it can become compulsive. Yeah. And if you're and if you have a streak of grandiosity and you to begin with, you can really believe your fantasies. You can really believe that, you know, one of the things I used to tell my grandmother is that one day I'm going to be so rich, my limo driver is going to have a limo driver. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I'm an independent filmmaker, and I used to, like, tell my mom, like, what my Academy Awards speech was going to be. And she would say, I think you should work on making a good film. Like, how about just doing that? And and I didn't know what she was talking about. I just imagined walking down the red carpet and who I was going to thank. And I, yeah. So I'm, I imagine it would be fair to say that a lot of your desires were to be seen and loved for who you are. For sure. And to be rich and famous. Like I, you, you know. To be special. To be special, to be, you know, different in a good way where I was celebrated. Uh, yeah. And to be accepted for who I am and what I think. I mean, 
you know, um, my my mother's mother and my father's mother are both Jewish, white Jewish. So that's unique that a white woman and a black woman would get married and have a child in the 30s. Um, and my father um, and my grandfather on my mother's side were communists, like kind of well-known communists. Um, so that also is like weird. My father... Not the, um, not the Rosenbergs. No, not the Rosenbergs. Because okay. I was like, um, if, if we got to talk about that, if that was <laughs> one of them. And that... No, but like Angela Davis was a communist. People tend to think of her as a as a Black Panther, and she was kind of that as well peripherally, but really she was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party, and my father was friends with her. And um, so it's just – so, yeah, so I, I – was challenged in school. I didn't want to do the Pledge of Allegiance. I, you know, questioned capitalism and how it works. I Oh, you must have been popular with the teachers. Oh, man. And that and I look in high school. Um, they despise me. First of all, I went to one high school for two years. They track you. And in your third year, you should be able to take advanced placement courses. And my white counterparts were getting these AP classes and I wasn't. And when I questioned why, they said, well, there's just no more room. And I was like, but I have the same grades as these people. And they're like, we're just out of room. So I switched high schools and I went to an alternative high school that's meant to allow you to take college courses. So in my junior year, I took one. And then in my senior year, I wanted three more. And they said, no, that's too many. And then I was and I was having all these other problems. My principal comes to me one day and says, one of your teachers has said that you are a strumpet. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know what a strumpet is. And she said, well, it means that you're loose. And I remember pausing and thinking, what are the ways in which a person can be loose? Because I don't, I, uh, I was like, do you, do you mean sexually? <laughs> and she's like, yes. And I was like, who was it? Who said it? She wouldn't tell me. And I was like, oh, so I'm just going to study under with somebody who thinks this about me. Like I'm, and I dropped out. <laughs> I dropped out of high school. I was like, enough is enough. I can't get the classes I want. Um, you know, here I am with a bad reputation again. Um, I don't, I don't want to do it. And my mother threw a fit and was like, you, I mean, she'd already decided I was going to grad school. So of course I can't drop out of high school. And I, applied to a university without my diploma or my GED and they accepted me. Uh, I, and I, and I'm, I'm telling you my SAT scores weren't that high. Mm. I was pretty much a B student. It wasn't like I was like over the top, like amazing. Mm. And it was the best thing. So, you know, I started uh, college at 16. Um, but, you know, and that, 
and you know, but everywhere you go, there you are. And so you think a new place is going to be a new start. And by the way, when when I left Atlanta and went to Philadelphia, I picked an all girls high school because I'm going I was like, I'm going to manage this. I'm not going to live with a bad reputation. I'm going to go to a girls school. Therefore, I'm going to be safe. And of course, what a girls school attracts is a lot of boys. (laughs) (laughs) So they're there on the steps every morning and every afternoon. And, um, you know, so and everywhere you go, there you are. So um, but I loved college, luckily. Um, And did you study film? um, Yeah, I did. I actually started out as a physics major. I love physics. Um, There were no women uh, physics majors and, uh, the math was hard and there were no black people. And so I gave up pretty quickly because again, I just didn't feel a hundred percent safe or supported. And I, um, I always wanted to study film. And again, you know, I have this codependent relationship with my mom. She was like, I'm not letting you go to a university and study button pushing. Like you have to learn about people, places, things, science. You, you can't study communications. Uh, like you know, so I switched my major like five times before she was like, "Okay, you can do it." And I finally ended up getting a, a degree in in um, radio, television, film as an undergrad. Yeah. Where was your dad in your life? You mentioned that that he was friends with Angela Davis. Was he living on the West Coast? No, um, they actually became friends when she was on the run. And, um, you know, they, uh, he helped her, uh, you know, escape the FBI for a while. And they spent time in Chicago, which is where he's from and in Florida. And eventually, um, they were caught in New York. And so this probably blows my anonymity, but whatever. So they get arrested in New York and he um, is released on bail. And a good friend of his, who's a good friend of my mother's, throws him a bail party. And that's where my mom and dad meet. Now, my mom had always told me that I was a planned child, that she and my father both wanted to have a baby and they planned for me. And I just assumed that they met, fell in love, got married, and a couple years later had a child. And then I watched a documentary maybe just four or five years ago, and I started doing the math. And I was like, uh, he got out on bail, and then I was born 11 months later. <laughs> <laughs> like uh i don't know when the party was or whatever but we're talking two months Uh, like i guess that can be qualified as planning i don't know um so i you know and my father uh had a first wife who committed suicide she had a one sentence suicide note it said um My father's name was David. It said, David, I'm tired of you, your whores, and your mama. Wow. 
And I was like, if ever there's a love addict suicide note, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I don't know that this one, I never, obviously I never met that woman. So I don't know. And then very shortly after that, he had a girlfriend in Chicago. And so when he met up with Angela, he ends up with her and this woman in Chicago that he's living with. The woman didn't appreciate their relationship. So they left and went to Florida thinking, who knows what she's going to do in her anger. Mm-hmm. So that's woman number two, Angela's woman number three. And then my mom is woman number four in a very short period of time. So I don't know if there's a genetic disposition for this, mm. <laughs> but I feel like, you know, and then, you know, and at the time that my mom and dad got together and my mom got pregnant, there was no way to know whether he was going to end up in j- jail in prison for a very long time and, and talk about why the fbi didn't didn't like him uh and kind of set the stage for the the animosity between the fbi and the the um struggle for black liberation and the black panther movement yeah so As much as I want to be an expert, I'm not. So I'll just share the little bit that I know um, about Angela Davis's story. Apparently, in in Northern California, there were a group of men who were on trial for a crime who got guns and shot up a courtroom. And... The guns were purchased by Angela Davis. So she was wanted in connection Mm -hmm. with what happened and became sort of a worldwide iconic figure and today is still really respected as an abolitionist. There's a modern day abolitionist movement that wants to end um, the prison system. Um, so many people, it was news to me until I watched the documentary 13 that private corporations are getting their products made by prisoners working for a dollar an hour. They have, they have prisoners fighting fires in Northern California for $2 an hour. I mean, it's absurd. And, 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 and just to let the people know who who aren't familiar with thirteen refers to in the in the uh is the constitution it's the thirteenth amendment of the constitution just describe what it says it the thirteenth amendment is celebrated because it frees the slaves, but there's an exception it frees slaves with the exception as um the punishment for a crime. You can still be a slave. You're still a slave. Essentially, your state property once you're incarcerated. And, um, you know, look, prisoners are referred to by a number. Why? Like, that reminds me of Nazi Germany. Like, why? And it shouldn't. There's nothing about our system that should remind me of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really dehumanizing, and it's just a way to... You know, today, keep black, brown and poor people, uh, you know, under the nose of the the state, um, cheap labor and 
Um, you know, it, it's just, it, there's, I mean, you lose so much once you're in the system, the right to vote in some places. Um, yeah. You know, I would definitely say I'm I'm an abolitionist. I do believe um, we've got to tear down a system created from scratch and we've got to really rethink what justice in America looks like, because from its inception, it there's systemic racism. And so we need something new. We do need something new. It is yeah. it is not working. And, and even among people who consider themselves allies, there has been tremendous enlightenment going on. You know, I've always considered myself an ally, ally or would have liked to have considered myself an ally. And practically every year, something blows my mind and I go, wow. I need to fucking read more. I need to meet more people. I need to protest more. Uh, so I, I can't imagine what the gap is between what we need and where we are right now. And luckily, there are a lot of people who've been thinking about that for a long time. And I think we just need to pay attention to what they've figured out and what they want to share with us. Um, because it feels brand new for a lot of people, but it's, it's been such a long struggle and there've been so many brilliant people who've been, been on it. And I will just say like these recent uprisings for, do feel different because of how many allies are participating. You know, when I, I wasn't here in 1992 for the Rodney King riots, but they were predominantly in black neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And this time in LA, there were protests in Beverly Hills, in Santa Monica, in the Fairfax district, 20,000 people in Hollywood. That's amazing. And I credit in part to the pandemic. Like, I do believe that there is something about the fact that people are on lockdown. They were in their homes. They watched the death of George Floyd undistracted, possibly by work, by going to a sporting event, a restaurant, a bar. They just sat in their homes like, oh, my goodness. And there's something about being in a struggle yourself that makes you more compassionate, I believe. And... I think on a gut level, this question of what's more important, property, money, or person, is something that people were <clears throat> thinking about because the question of do we open up businesses during a pandemic, well, more people will die. Well, is it worth having people die so that we can have a good economy? That whole conversation. And then here it is. George Floyd was murdered over $20. $20. And I think people thought about their own economic struggles and their own problems. And they were like, maybe what black people have been saying about how this isn't my fault. Maybe that is true. Enough is enough. And they went out and 
protested in mass in every state across this nation and around the world. And I'll share something with you. One of my resentments, and we talk about resentments a lot in program because they're fuel for acting out. So you got to really pay attention to them. You know, my ancestors were ripped from Africa, right? 400 years ago, I have been wondering, like, when is Africa going to you know, when is m- mom and dad going to say, stop treating my great grandkids like this? When are they going to? And I recognize that Africa has a lot of issues around poverty and politics and health. And but everything they're dealing with just got summed up as unavailable. Like, you're just unavailable to help me. And I'm triggered by unavailable. Like, no, I need you to be available. <laughs> like, I need you to, like, and um, and I know it's kind of ridiculous. But, you know, when I see Palestinians saying Black Lives Matter and people marching in London, and then just last week, all 54 countries in Africa went to the UN Council on Human Rights Violations and said, come on, you've got to investigate racism and police brutality around the world and start really looking at the United States. And it just felt like such a healing, like, oh, that's all I needed. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for popping in, Dad. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. I appreciate it. I know you guys have been busy, but, you know, I, you know, yeah, so. Was your dad in your life at all? Oh, right. That was the original question. So my dad would visit, visited me up until I was five years old, and... The way my mom tells the story, because I don't remember it, is that I told her, you know, when he's around you, he's nice to me. But when we're alone together, he's not nice and I don't want to see him anymore. And my mom refused to let him see me anymore. Now, seems like a weird story to me. Like, do you let a kid make that decision? Do you not figure out, well, what does that mean? What was he doing to me? She said she tried to ask me and I wouldn't say, and I have no recollection of what I meant by that. And then every year for my birthday, she would say, you know, do you want to talk to your dad? And until I was 15, I said no. And at 15, I was like, yeah, I want to talk to my dad. So it was a decade later after I had last seen him that I got in touch with him. He was living in Florida and he came to Philadelphia and we had lunch together. And we got along well enough. Um, I have <clears throat> five half siblings I've never met and have no contact with. And he, you know, I, I was trying to please him. I was like, look at my grades, look at pictures of me and my friends. And he would be like, oh, your brothers and sisters have even better grades. What? Yeah, he's he wasn't the healthiest, nicest person. Wow. That's an understatement. (laughs) Yeah. So I I don't remember being particularly hurt or annoyed, but I remember it because when I shared it with my mom, she was furious. So 
we would talk a couple of times a year via phone. Um, he actually bought a plane ticket for me to come and come to Florida. And my mom had a breakdown about it. And that freaked me out. So I canceled the trip. She just sobbed like, why do you need a relationship with him? Why? And, I'm, you know, I'm like, he's my dad. But I, I, I man, I tried to manage her emotions for my own safety at that age. So she was upset. Then that was it. I'm not going. So I never went. And it would have been an opportunity for me to meet my grandmother on my father's side. And, and I regret not, not meeting her. Um, and then one year, uh, and then around my 18th birthday, I thought, oh, I haven't heard from my dad in a while. That's strange. And my grandmother on my mother's side found an obituary. He had died of emphysema. He'd been in the hospital for months and never contacted me to say he was sick or anything. I wasn't mentioned in the obituary. And that was it. Do you remember what you thought or felt when you heard that he died? You know, at the time, I really didn't feel like I loved him. Um, I felt rejected that I hadn't heard from him. Uh, but I kind of took the stance of like, I don't care. Like, I remember my mom calling me uh, into her job. She's like, I want you to stop by my office at work. I have something serious to tell you. And I had a bunch of fears of what it could be. So when she said my my dad died, I was like, is that it? Is it nothing? You're not, you don't have cancer, nothing. Right, yeah. It was like, I, so it was a little bit of a relief. Right. <laughs> um, honestly, so... Um, to this day, I wish I knew who my brothers and sister were i don't even know their names so let's let's talk about uh i want to i know you're you're pressed for time and i want to get as much uh of your story in as as we can let's switch over to um bottoming out in your addiction to unhealthy men or acting out or whatever it looked like for you what did what did it look like I, um, I'll start it a few years before I bottomed out. I, you know, I was, um, obsessed with this one guy that lived downstairs from me in a building in Philadelphia. I just, you know, I wanted this man to be my husband. Right. And, he moved to, he got a better job and moved to a, a better neighborhood. And I was like, I, I, we're not in the same building. How am I going to survive? And so I was like, I've got to get closer to him, but I couldn't afford the neighborhood he lived in. So I moved five blocks north to North Philly. And if you don't know North Philly, oh my goodness. So I show him the apartment like yeah I'm thinking about running this place what do you think and he said Sarah this neighborhood is drug infested it's gang infested it's violent it's dangerous you don't know anything about it you can't live here like you you can't live here 
And I was like, oh, okay. And then I rented it the next day. Mm. <laughs> right? So I'm living in North Philly, and then I get a job in <clears throat> North Philly um, teaching video production. There's an, there's an economic um, – there's a workforce development center that was started under the Clinton administration to help kids in severely economically disadvantaged communities gain skills to be able to go out and work. It was a five-year non-renewable grant, and this was three and a half years into it, and they were starting to panic, like, in a year and a half, we're shutting this all down. These kids have to be able to go out and get work. So, Susan, can you come in here, teach these kids how to get jobs doing video production? Can you train mm -hmm. them? And so I came in and I did that. And, uh, you know, um, I just was overly involved. That's just the way, like, I was triggered by, you know, kids who were living in homes that there was a drug abuse and alcohol, untreated alcohol abuse, and I was going to save these kids. And uh, I ended up having like five kids live with me, you know, um, and I and I was training them and they were getting work, work teaching, work, um, you know, they worked on an MTV pilot feature films mm -hmm. like it was amazing. And they had such talent. Um, long story short, um, and at the time I was dating a guy who was unavailable. He lived with a woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, but we saw each other every day and I just pretended that she didn't exist. And so that's how my disease showed up. Um, and I lived in North Philly and he lived in South Philly with this woman. And I got this bright idea. I was like, I'll move to California. I'll take some of these kids with me. We'll live our dreams in Hollywood. We'll make films in Hollywood. And this guy will finally have to make a decision between me and this woman in South Philly. He can't travel back and forth across the country. Like he oh just drives 20 minutes from South Philly to North Philly. Like he, and he's going to pick me. So I moved to, so I moved to LA with three of the kids. Um, at this point, they're 18, 19, and the youngest is 17. And I literally had to get the 17-year-old's mother to sign over, you know, custody of him because mm -hmm. I'm leaving with a minor across state lines and I've got to get him into high school and all this mm -hmm. other stuff. So, and everybody in my life said, what are you doing? You don't have a place to live. You don't have a job. You're acting like a crazy person. <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> you can't do this. And I was like, yes, I can. <laughs> and like, there was no stopping me. And so I move across country and the boyfriend comes out to L.A. He's visiting me on a regular basis. He interviews for a job and... um it's an amazing job. And I'm like, this is it. He's picking me. He's going to move out here. We're going to be a family. And uh, he goes back to Philly to pack, pack up. And he ends up calling me to say, no, I took a job here. And, you know, part of the way this worked for me was like I was in fantasy until I couldn't be anymore. Mm -hmm. And that was it for me. I was like, oh, my God, he's 
Like, this isn't real. This isn't going to happen. And I went through such a withdrawal. And what cuts a withdrawal short is just hooking up with the next person. Mm -hmm. And the youngest boy had turned was about 18 and a half at this point in the story. And that's who I hooked up with. Like, this is a person that I had gone around introducing as my son to everyone. And now I'm in a really a crazy relationship with him. You know, he's addicted to drugs. I don't know it at the time. And it got to be a mess. Um, and I was living a double life. I was lying to everyone. I mean, he my mom thought of him as my son, even though she right. didn't think any of this was a good idea and it was and we were making films we did three feature films the first four years that i was um in la which is just um like amazing um so we were really working and that whole time i was just spiraling down in my disease mm -hmm. um the relationship got physically abusive and he was arrested when he um, but for just a short time, he went in for four months. And when he got out, they said, you can't be around Susan ever again, or it's going to be a parole violation and you're going right back. And so he went back to Philly. And that's when I got into program because I was like, what am I doing? The shame was so great. I was so embarrassed and disgusted with myself and so just the most miserable I've ever been. And so I actually, you know, there's a great treatment center. I think it's in Arizona. Mm -hmm. I called them and I was like, I think I have this issue and I need help. And you're in Arizona. I think I could be there by Thursday. And they were like, great. We would love to have you. It's 30000 for the month. Did you want to do check or credit card? I was like, I'm black and poor. <laughs> Just send me over the financial aid scholarship information. I'll definitely fill it out and have it to you on Thursday. They're like, no, 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 we don't have any of that. And so I was like, uh, maybe there's a 12 step program. I don't know. I Googled it and ended up in a meeting and really knew nothing about program. Um, so. Uh, but it saved my life. So. And what did you? I, I'm still soaking in the 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 whole thing with the the kid that you had custody of. That's heavy, man. That's heavy. You know. Oh God, I've made an amends to his mom. Like that was the hardest, scariest thing I've done. Like she she trusted me. Um, her story was the saddest ever, too. She got pregnant at 13, uh, you know, by like a 40-something-year-old and had, you know, a, another baby the year later and another baby the year later. So she had three sons. She was an untreated alcoholic. This boy's father was an untreated heroin addict. And so... They just struggled. And I didn't know anything about an inside job. I thought, okay, we're going to leave North Philly and we're going to 
moved to Studio City, California on a beautiful palm tree lined block. And all of our problems are going to disappear. Like, it's going to be fine. He's going to go to school and do really well. And we're going to have, you know, this easy life. And it was not that. It was he needed help beyond what I could give. And then I made it worse. But you, you know, the, the, the good thing is, is that you take ownership. You have clarity of it. A lot of people who get into an addiction never pull out of the spiral. They never pull out of the dishonesty with themselves. And and some people go back and forth, bet, you know, between the two. Um, it's amazing when 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 the truth of our lives is so painful to look at, you know, we will certainly take visits from lies to, to we'll interview lies to <laughs> step in and take over for the truth. Cause it's big time. And Paul, when you tell your story about your mom, you know, I just, it really, helps me take accountability and get present for the harm I've done. And I make a living amends every day by being a different person. And I know there's only so much I can do, but that's so important to me. Um, Yeah, because I spent so much time as a victim to think of myself as a perpetrator it's hard it's painful um not proud well you 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 are somebody who you know if, if somebody came up to me and said name three people who have helped you the most and your recovery you would be one of those people um, I've, I've shared this story before, but you know, at the risk of, uh, being boring, I'm going to, I'm going to share it again. I was, had been in our support group for a couple of years and I was just starting to deal with the fact, um, that what I had experienced was a, a form of incest, uh, from, from my mom. But I was also starting to face all of the damage that I had done to women the objectifying, the cheating, um, the callousness. Uh, and, and I thought, God, how am I ever going to let these people in my support group really get to know me? Because I have the feeling the men will be okay with my past, but the women will not. And somebody asked me, to lead the meeting one night and I told my story and I remember I couldn't even like make eye contact when I was speaking and I talked about all of my cheating and um, just the way I, I, I had looked at women and and treated them and you know uh, And I just felt such shame. And we were out to dinner afterwards. And there's a group of us, about 12 of us. And you and I were seated across from each other. And I don't know if we'd ever even said more than a couple of sentences to each other. You were fairly new. And 
And I was just lost in thought, just thinking, why did I share all those things? I, nobody is ever going to talk to me again. And you said, Paul, you, you seem lost in thought. What are you, what are you thinking about? And I said, I was, you really want to know? I, I was just regretting all of the stuff that I shared. And you said, why? And I said, because, um, what woman is going to want to be friends with a, a pig? And you said, Paul, can't you see that you didn't do those things because you wanted to? You did those things because of what happened to you as a child. And it broke something open inside me. It was the first time anybody had ever seen that part of me, that I'd showed that part to, to anybody, and they had looked at it with love. And not to say that what you did was okay, Paul, but you're a human being and you're trying to do better and there's a good person inside there. And I broke down and I started crying. And that was the moment that I started to recover because I couldn't get past my hatred of myself because I believed that not only had I done things that were wrong, I was wrong. My very essence was wrong. And you turned a light bulb on in my head that maybe I'm redeemable. Maybe I can get better and I can be a force for good in the world rather than a cancer. Ah, yeah. No, thank you. And I remember like genuinely having nothing but compassion and being so grateful for your story for i mean for hearing a man tell the truth i mean it's not every day a guy says oh yeah you know i i cheat i lie i objectify you know that's but and you feel gaslit all the time and to just have somebody be vulnerable creates a space for other people to be vulnerable. So, and it was so obvious that you desperately wanted to be a good person who doesn't do harm. So who couldn't love that, you know? Just incredibly lovable, so. Well, I feel, I feel the same way about <laughs> you. Every you. time I, I see you, um, I just, I, I feel such warmth and, um. Thank you. I've come such a long way and I appreciate my journey and shout out to my higher power because I definitely could not have done it without my higher. I wouldn't have esteem without my higher power. I just started having to trust God when God said, oh, no, you're here. I want you to be here. <clears throat> you're valuable. And I, and I didn't have that prior to program, that relationship, you know. So. I love you. Love you too, Paul. Thanks for coming on the podcast. <laughs> Is there anything you want to you share before we wrap up? No, I think I think that was a lot. So thank yeah. you for letting me share it all. Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed that uh, conversation. I certainly did. Um, 
This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine, from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I'm going to jump into some surveys. This is a happy moment survey filled out by a guy who calls himself the Fairweather Friend. And he writes, over the past few months, I've been dealing with an obsessive fixation on a guy. Uh, I met him at work. He occupies most of my waking thoughts. I constantly fantasize about what it might be like to date him, and I envision snapshots of our potential future together, down to the tiniest details. We're friends, but I don't even know if he likes me back. He probably doesn't. I'm too afraid to ask and end the rush I get from thinking he might feel the same about me. I live in a state of perpetual emotional turmoil, and no one knows but me. If I get a nice text from him or maybe a kind smile, I'm walking on air all day. If he's unresponsive or short with me, I'm plunged into a deep depression. If he takes a vacation or sick day, my whole day is ruined, and I even wonder if I can somehow go home early and take a sick day myself. This just isn't sustainable, and I feel like a creep. I'm perfectly polite to him in person. He even says I'm a good friend. He probably has no idea how much of my headspace he occupies. I felt really alone in this, ashamed to even tell my therapist what's going on. But then yesterday, I stumbled across a word, limerence. Out of curiosity, I opened the Wikipedia article on it and felt an almost magical tingling throughout my whole body as I read. Every single sentence resonated with me. It's like someone read my mind and wrote an article on it. Limerence is not the same as love. It's an intense attachment that only feels like love. Because at its root, limerence isn't about the other person, the limerent object, and their true wants and needs. It's about what you project onto them and what you want them to bring to your life. And sometimes it can even become harmful to the limerent object if you cling too hard or get angry at them for not reciprocating your obsession. Now that I know I'm experiencing limerence, 
Now I know that I'm experiencing limerence. This problem has a name. It may not look like much right now, but it's a way out for me. This knowledge alone was such a relief, and even though I'm still in the midst of these feelings, I can now see an end in sight. And knowing that others experience it too makes me not afraid to tell my therapist about it. Time to move forward. Oh man, thank you for that. That is such, such an important thing that you wrote there and and a, and a moment that that you had, that epiphany that you had, that the universe guiding you to that moment that you needed to, to move forward. And you explained it so, so well. That's why I, I, I dislike the term love addiction because it's not if it's addictive that's not love that's not mature love it's limerence like you said but since there's no other name for love addiction that's kind of what it's called at least for now this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself book smart and she writes detained in a mental health unit on one uh, one-to-one observations and telling my one-to-one nurse that I want to set fire to myself and have an out-of-body experience just to watch myself burn. Her response? Okay, but can you not do it on my shift as I'm going home in a half hour and that is a lot of paperwork for me. I don't know if that nurse was doing that tongue-in-cheek or if she was deadly serious, but holy fuck. Thank you for sharing that, and I'm glad you're still around to share that with us. This is from the Racism Survey, filled out uh, by a woman who is in her 50s. Uh, She calls herself on the fence. Uh, Your ethnicity, black or African-American, Share any experiences you've had with racism, when it happened and how old you were. My mom put me in an all-white dance studio. I wasn't allowed to be in class with kids my age because I was black. At the dance recital, adults and kids would call me the N-word backstage. I was 14, shy, innocent to that level of racism. I had to do my dance with a group of kids my age, but I hadn't been able to practice with them. One of the adults called me the n-word and the teacher heard also i finally told my mom and she talked to the teacher this was my second year at the studio dancing in the recital and dealing with racism i feel bad and good my dance teacher threatened them that if they kept harassing me she would cancel the recital i don't know why she didn't just get rid of them and maybe they couldn't do the recital without them i don't know but that that. Anyway, continuing, I felt embarrassed, empowered, and alone. Some people were nicer, uh, and some people were angrier after that. Life changed. She put me in class with kids my age the next season. The twins of the studio were so angry that I was in their class that they quit the studio. Do you remember how it, you felt when it happened? I felt scared overwhelmed and alone. The adults were large and scary. My teacher was white. It was her studio. I didn't feel worthy of the attention. How do you feel about it now? I feel grateful to the white people who were nice and felt bad that someone would treat me badly. 
I feel grateful to and for the teacher. I feel sorry for people who are racist and scared of others. I feel anger also because learning about others is as easy as joining a group of people who are different and watching and learning. Now people can watch educational videos about others. Being part of the majority is no longer an excuse. Any thoughts or feelings you'd like to share? I wish my mom had the ability to see that I was being fed to the lions by being at an all-white dance studio in an all-white suburb. On the other side, other side, I identify with and get along with white people because of my experiences. Thank you for sharing that. It's interesting, the spectrum of responses uh, we've gotten to the racism survey. Um, a lot, a lot uh, from all ethnicities, and I think... I think they're all important to read, you know, whether I agree with them or not, or don't understand what they're saying. This is one that I think is important to read. This is filled out by a white guy in his 40s named Jeff, and he writes, I feel poverty is a much larger problem than racism. I feel the machine that gained ground on racism has somewhat run out of huge problems, but the machine is so powerful and that now it's inventing, inventing problems to feed the machine. It has a supply and demand problem to an extent, possibly. A lot of things seem racist. A white person moves into a neighborhood. It's gentrification. A white person leaves a neighborhood. It's racist, etc., and so on. As a white male, I can't say any of these things out loud, and that also might be a problem, I feel. Well, if that is a problem, that's uh, probably problem number uh, 10,006 on the list of things we need to take care of as a society. Um, I agree that poverty is a big problem. Is it larger than racism? I, I don't think it, there's anything to be gained by comparing the two because we're, we're not, um, they're both a problem. And I think they also both feed each other. You know, as far as a machine gaining ground on racism and running out of huge problems, I I would say the machine can't keep up. I would say the machine isn't interested in it and it's not processing these things. I mean, all of this stuff is so interwoven and I'm glad that you filled this out because the easiest thing in the world is to say, fuck you, I disagree with you and unfriend you on Facebook. And while there's a lot of people that I think genuinely should be unfriended because they're they're it's just toxic and unhealthy for our soul to have conversations with these people to me jeff you don't sound like a malicious person but you sound like somebody who could use more lived experience or 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 more exposure to other people's experience um to to help you be a little bit more enlightened. You know, you write a white person moves into a neighborhood, it's gentrification. Well, it's not the, the white person moving into the neighborhood per se. It's a neighborhood when, when gentrification happens and the nature and cost of living of a neighborhood changes and then it's suddenly beyond the reach of the people who were living there and then they're stuck with trying to find a place to live. And I don't think gentrification is uh, a malicious 
form of racism. I, I, I think, again, it's a, it's an economic thing. And, um, all of this shit is so complicated. And you write that I can't say any of these things out loud, and that might be a problem. Um, I think it's important for, for there to be a dialogue about the, these things. Where and when is the right time to have that, that, that dialogue? Well, I would say that, you know, saying that to somebody right now, probably not a good time, especially to a, a, a person of color, but I would say anybody right now would be a pretty insensitive time uh, to be talking about that. But um, I wanted to read what you wrote because I think it's an important point of view that needs to be addressed um, because so many of us disagree with it and brushing it aside isn't going to get rid of it. But thank you for, for filling that out. Uh, this is from the Racism Survey, also filled out by uh, a white guy in his 30s, and he writes, When I was in my early 20s, I worked in retail. One morning when we were setting up the store, before it opened, I was in an aisle doing something, and this other white guy I knew well came over and said, Hey, Marcus, what's up? I was in a bad mood, which doesn't excuse this, but for some reason I responded, Don't call me Marcus, that's a black name. The guy got a shocked look on his face and then pointed behind me. There, working innocently, innocently was this teenage black guy who just started a few days earlier. He just kept working like he didn't hear it, but I tried to cover my ass and make some excuse out loud, not directly to him, but just to everyone, that I think Marcus sounds better on black guys than white guys. What bullshit. At the time, I was only mad at myself for getting caught. It was just a dumb remark that didn't mean anything, right? I wasn't racist. Uh, I mean, I don't use the N-word and go to KKK rallies, but as time went on, I started to realize what a shitty thing I'd done. A comment that I saw as harmless was just another painful reminder to this guy that he was being judged for the color of his skin. Years later, I see this guy on TV. He owns his own business now and seems to be doing great. I'm really happy for him. He's a great guy, but I still wonder if he remembers my stupid comment, if it nags at him like it nags at me. I hope not. Thank you for that, Mark. My hunch is it doesn't still nag at him because it's one of hundreds, if not thousands, of things that he has endured in, in his lifetime. But who knows? This is from the love survey filled out by Veruca Salt, and she writes, I love spring. I love the smell of damp earth and the dewy grass as the sun finally starts peeking through the clouds, the birds chirping in the trees, busy making their nests, daffodils, tulips, and irises erupting from flower beds, proving that after the long and harsh winter, there is still life and beauty in this world, showing that the winter was worth struggling through, if only for this. Now, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Oh, do I love that smell of damp earth in the in the spring. It's such a specific smell. And it also reminds me of being a kid and knowing that summer vacation was just around the corner. 
Oh my god. Oh my god. <sighs> this is from the love survey filled out by No Name. And they write, I really love when I find myself totally engrossed in an activity. I feel like I always have to force myself to do things, even things I love. I'm usually unable to focus on most things, and it makes me sad. But when I realize I've almost subconsciously sat down and played the piano or read a book just because I feel like it, it makes me feel accomplished. Wow, do I love that one. And wow, do I relate to that one. One of the worst things about depression is it sucking the color out of your passion. And every day just feeling like a groundhog day of obligations and responsibilities and feeling separate from the rest of the world because we can't feel. And for me, depression is not usually a sadness. It's a numbness. It's a nothingness. This is from the racism survey filled out by Amanda, uh, who identifies as non-binary, uh, Hispanic or Latino, and in her 30s. And she writes, when I was 13, I was watching a movie with my family, which included my stepdad at the time. A black kid came on screen and he made a, quote, joke about him growing up to be a future bank robber. He made this, quote, joke on the heels of another joke, so everyone has just finished laughing, which made it almost a reflex to just laugh at the next one. I laughed without actually hearing the comment, and I was so disappointed in myself. I made a vow to myself at that very moment in time that no matter how slow I reacted to anything, that I would always listen to it first and then react. Do you remember how you felt when it happened? Mad. How could a 50-year-old man be so ignorant and willing to say such bullshit in front of children? Thank you for that. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself happy. And she writes, And this one, man, did this one uh, twist my twist my head. Uh, I, I never expected to read something like this, but I... I am grateful when you guys submit stuff that gives me pause and yeah, I'm just going to read it. The most positive and yes, happy experience that led me to more happiness was me laying on that table in an abortion clinic. As a nurse asked me how I was doing, what I did for work and what classes I was taking. Just a casual conversation with a smiling stranger. It should have been a, di a different scene for someone like me. With anxiety like an alien autopsy while I lay under those white lights and my legs sprawled open. I was known to faint during gyno procedures and had uh, fear of anything medical related to the female anatomy. So I was predicting the worst. And here I was, gushing to a stranger about my very special kids that I worked with. I should have felt more guilt, more fear, more shame. I was raised in a Catholic, uh, I was raised a Catholic schoolgirl. I remember standing on the side of the road with a sign held up protesting this, deliberate acts against God's love. I now, as an adult, am not devout to any religion, but am still spiritual and work at a Catholic special needs school. At my work, where once a week I'd sit in mass 
with the kids and help them stay focused on when to kneel and genuflect. I dedicated my life to kids, especially those who were born different. I saw purpose and beauty in every child I'd ever met. I should have felt everything but what I was feeling. I should have felt like a liar, like I was betraying what I stood for, what I loved. I should have thought if I believed every child is born good, then who am I to deny chance of life to the five-week-old bit of cells laying in my uterus? No matter what they come out as, I would not see a flaw in them. I'd be a good mother, the best, and wanted to be someday. Maybe should have at age 27. I should have thought all these things while I was going through this surreal experience. I was a nervous wreck all week while waiting for this. While sitting in that office going through the paperwork, I felt empty at times. And after the procedure, I felt the physical pain and went to work. Once while standing uh, upright in mass, some might see that as a sign. But while I lay on the table waiting for the procedure to start, I felt nothing but peace. My boyfriend there holding my hand, that medical technician asking those casual questions as if this was just my first day of class. It felt serene and like the stranger was going to take care of me. I felt protected and safe. I don't know why or how, but one thing I know for sure is that that woman who spoke to me was an angel and I felt closer to God then. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. That is heavy and profound. And I appreciate you taking the time to to share that. And then finally, this is from the love survey filled out by Pebbles. And she writes, uh, I love when the sun rises above the adjacent condo building and the afternoon sunlight starts to flood my bedroom. I swear the warm sunbeams Sunbeams heat up my sheets and release the scent of fresh linen. It smells like comfort. I love when my annoying cat starts to screech every time I start a conference call, providing myself and others with a laugh at her dramatic meow. I love when my girlfriend tucks me in really tight to her chest and somehow keeps squeezing me even after she begins to lightly snore. And I love lighting the candles on my Buddhist altar every night, reminding me that suffering ends if we stay present. Thank you for that. Staying present. What a challenge. Holy shit. I meditate almost every morning and I always feel like I'm doing it badly or wrongly. And I know intellectually that that's not what is important. That's what important is, is that you sit down and you do it. And uh, if you guys have never tried meditation, it it's, um, it can be really profound and other times it can feel like you just wasted 20 minutes, at least for me. But I know that it's worthwhile to do it even if it feels like I didn't accomplish anything. Anyway, I don't know how I got off on that tangent. I uh, I hope you enjoyed the conversation and the surveys today. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, uh, you are not alone. You're not alone. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.
Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.